Listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Sean Schuneman. And here's my favorite thing about the story we're about to tell. The reporter turned in a first draft six months before it would eventually run. In December 2014, Michael Davidson of the Sarasota Herald Tribune thought he had his story. He was investigating the police canine unit in Northport, a unit that seemed to be having a lot of violent encounters with suspects. Some digging and some data analysis showed that Northport did, in fact, have a higher rate of bites than other police departments in the area. And Michael made some good progress in his reporting. He had a victim, he had five years of records on the K-9 unit, data from surrounding units, etc. So he wrote it up, came in at 60 column inches, which is roughly 2,000 words. A few days before Christmas, Michael sat down for a meeting with his editor and the investigations editor. Typical of the newspaper world, it lasted all of like five minutes or less. Maybe the actual time he was actually talking about the story was more like two minutes. He told me that, um, you know, I think you've got good content, but this story is like nowhere near done. That meeting turned out to be the halfway point. When the story ran after a year of reporting, it included more victims, more data, more experts and it included a crucial identifier called the bite ratio, which helped Michael show just how out of the ordinary Northport's tactics were. Coming up, IRE contributor Aaron Pellish talks to Michael at length about his process and brings us behind the scenes of his story called Scarred, the canine team's darker side. Michael Davidson was less than two months into his new job at the Sarasota Herald Tribune when he heard what happened to 18-year-old Danielle Drake in Northport, Florida. Uh, on social media, there was some talk about, oh, this bystander in an incident got uh, bit by a police canine. Has anybody heard if she's okay? And that, that kind of, you know, piqued my interest. Michael graduated from the University of Florida in 2013. He worked for less than a year at the Pensacola News Journal before moving to Sarasota in May. Drake was attacked the following month. After searching through more than 2,500 police records during a year-long investigation, Michael discovered that Northport Police canines were biting citizens like Drake at a pretty alarming rate. And what I found out was in five years that uh, more than 30 people were bitten. And that was far more than any other uh, municipal police department in the area, and it was actually more than five other police departments combined in the same time frame. Michael started his search by talking to Drake. She told Michael she was walking home from her boyfriend's house when a police dog attacked her from behind. Records of the incident indicate she was a suspect in a hit-and-run and ran from the police after they approached her. In an interview with another newspaper, Northport's police chief said Drake had been, quote, nipped by the canine. Her medical records show she received 34 stitches across her temple. She contested um, the official uh, police version of events of what happened. They said that she had run face first into their police dog when they tried to surround her. Uh, she said that they had unleashed the police dog on her from behind. And that was the main uh, 
point of conflict in this story. You know, had this person basically done something that had caused their own injury, or had the police, uh, you know, released this dog on this 18-year-old woman? Michael's next stop was the police department. He decided to try and pull the file on Drake's case to get more facts, but he ran into a problem. A month after the initial attack, police reopened the case with the intent of prosecuting Drake for resisting arrest. Because the case was still active, Michael couldn't get access to the records for months. The state attorney's office ultimately decided not to pursue charges. So I only had one side of her story at the time, and what I decided to do was I thought I'd look to see if there was a pattern of excessive force by this canine unit. Michael says Florida's records laws are very broad, which allowed him access to all kinds of files that, in other states, might have been out of reach. But even then, he still had trouble getting the information he needed. One of his biggest challenges was learning which records had which pieces of information. Michael didn't know how the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or FDLE's, record systems worked. So he started his investigation by grabbing at straws. For example, uh, like when I started, I asked for use of force reports documenting uh, these canine bites. And there, there are use of force reports, but they're very, they don't have very much information in them. And they didn't even, like not every canine bite was uh, documented with a quote-unquote use of force form. Instead, they were documented with response to resistance forms, which is basically what you would think of when you think of a use of force report, but it's just called by a different name. So I didn't get the response to resistance reports until I found out that the FDLE called them response to resistance reports and specifically asked for that. A critical document in Michael's investigation was something called a field contact report. We'll get to the importance of those reports later. But for a while, Michael didn't even know they existed, and he had trouble getting his hands on them once he did. Uh, a response to resistance report might be under uh, case number, I'm just going to make something up, let's say like 2014-001. And when I was reading through the response to resistance reports at one point, I noticed that at the bottom it, it said on one of them that it was, um, in, it matched up with um, field contact report 2014-002. And what I ended up finding out was the field contact reports, which were actually written by the canine handler, documenting their actions and why they believed it was necessary to do what they did, um, was actually stored under a completely different case number than the arrest report and the response to resistance report. And so I didn't know those existed for a long time because I would request all documents, you know, associated with case number 2014-001, and even though the canine handler's report was under, was still part of that case, it was under case number 2014-002. Michael struggled constantly with navigating the police record system. He made about 18 trips to the Northport Police Station to pick out records. The station was about an hour round trip from his office, so he had to squeeze in time before or after work to rush over. He looked for similar investigations to find a research template, but he couldn't find any. And the police wouldn't talk to him on the record because of pending litigation involving a canine bite so he was forced to learn the nuances of police records on the fly. It's very hard to um, pull everything because you just simply don't know, you know, if you've never done this sort of story before to do that, to pull the extra numbers or ask if there are any extra case numbers associated with it. 
Eventually, Michael figured out which documents he could get by reading the standard operating procedure for Northport's canine unit. He used it to figure out which documents were filed by which people and where to find certain pieces of information. He also stumbled upon a detail that proved to be a powerful element in this investigation. Canine officers were required to take digital color photographs every time a dog bit someone. So when I read that, um, I started, as well as requesting response to resistance reports, I requested the photos that went along with those, too, to see how bad the injuries were. And what we found out by looking at those photos was that these injuries were really gruesome. I mean, you know, I've been bitten by a house dog before, a house pet before, and sure, like, it, it, draw, it drew a little blood and I had to go see the doctor, but I didn't have to have any sort of reconstructive surgery or staples from it. You know, if you, when you look at these bites, they're, they're really gruesome. I mean, the dog gets in there, um, you're missing chunks of flesh that are the size of, you know, ping pong balls on some of these people, you know. Um, I mean, it was really devastating damage that they, were, that they were getting, you could tell by the pictures, which really, that drove me in a sense to really question how often are these dogs being used if they inflict this much damage. Once Michael built his database, he was able to isolate trends in the numbers. That's how he discovered that one man and one dog were responsible for 21 bites from 2012 to 2014. When you look at the five years' worth of data, the numbers really explode, I think, beginning in 2012. And that was because that kind of coincided with a new handler joining the unit in late 2011. And, you know, it was very obvious whenever I looked at an Excel spreadsheet and used some pivot tables that, you know, one handler had a majority of these more than 30 bites. So that's how I decided to focus on him because I mean, he was just injuring people at an unprecedented rate compared to not only the rest of the officers in this department, but five other uh, police departments we look at. The officer in question is Keith Bush. His dog is named Tommy, an 80-pound Belgian Malinois. Michael was able to get access to police internal affairs records to track down Bush's history and his disciplinary record. He was able to do the same with other officers, and he discovered that three canine handlers were dismissed within the past five years because of misconduct, making Bush the most experienced member of the canine unit. Even though the police were unwilling to speak with Michael for his story, he was able to get Bush's voice in the investigation by mining his own papers archives. Well, the thing was this handler, Keith Bush, was actually really recognized um, in the area and by his police department because he had won several... Uh, police canine awards where these uh, handlers uh, meet up at field trials and their dogs are tested on different abilities such as tracking, um, you know, uh, their response to commands, things of that nature. And so we had done an article before on him and his dog and other news agencies, um, including a TV station that we partner with, uh, had done um, a, a feature on him, a small profile on him. After reporting for about four months, he had an interview with victim Daniel Drake, five years of records on the Northport Canine Unit, data from the canine units in neighboring cities, and a detailed history of Officer Bush and Tommy's service record. He put the story together and showed it to his editor. It came in at around 60 inches, or about a third of what it would later become. His editor showed it to the paper's investigations editor, and the three of them scheduled a meeting right before Christmas, six months after Michael first contacted Daniel Drake. 
it was a very brief meeting, actually, because the investigations editor had come with some, um, you know, notes prepared. But I think in like the span of five minutes, maybe less, maybe the actual time he was actually talking about the story was more like two minutes. He told me that, um, you know, I think you've got good content, but this story is like nowhere near done. The investigations editor told Michael he was missing two main components. The first involved data. He had the bite numbers for Northport's canine unit and the bite numbers for canine units in five neighboring towns. But he didn't have a method for directly comparing the departments on an even scale. You know, you've got these numbers of bites, and sure, Northport has way more bites than anybody else. But, you know, you need to have a way to compare that because, you know, does Northport have more canine handlers? Is that why they have more bites? You need a... Uh, uh, apples-to-apples comparison of the activity and the, the, bite, the amount of bites. To make that comparison, Michael used the common legal measurement tool for monitoring canine units, the bite ratio. It's simple math. The number of bites divided by the number of apprehensions. Two bites in 10 apprehensions, that's a bite ratio of 20%. Michael came across the bite ratio concept while looking through canine unit case law. And I realized, okay, this is how I determine, even if, you know, uh, you know, Northport has four canine handlers, and Venice only has, like, two. This is how I level that playing field, because I'm looking at the rate of bites, how often they occur uh, during apprehensions, instead of just looking at the sheer number of bites. And for the most part, that worked. He was able to get the bite ratios for every canine unit he looked into, except for Northport. The other police departments were able to give him the number of bites and apprehensions on a single document. From that... Michael just had to calculate the ratio. Northport didn't have a document with these numbers, and Florida state law says Northport didn't have to create one for him, so Michael had to calculate the bite ratio himself. And that led to another problem. Although counting dog bites is pretty easy, counting total apprehensions is much harder. There's a lot of ways a police canine can help bring someone to justice. I mean, the most obvious thing you might think about is there's a criminal suspect, you know, that's run from the scene of a crime. You bring the police canine out, the canine tracks the, that criminal scent, and the criminal is captured. But there are also instances where a officer in his patrol car pulls someone over for a traffic infraction um, completely unrelated to any canine activity, and then that officer smells what they believe to be marijuana or perhaps they think they see drugs inside the car, and they call a canine uh, team, and that, that canine comes out, and they have the canine smell the car, and if they find drugs because of that, um, you know, that's an arrest that is, that is made in part because of the canine, but for example, that doesn't actually count as an apprehension for the bite ratio because that person was already being detained because their car had been pulled over by the time the canine arrived on the scene. To figure out which incidents should count in Northport's bite ratio, Michael Colton, expert. Dr. Charles Meslow is a former canine handler at the Venice Police Department, which is in the same county as Northport. He's also an authority on police canine research. Michael reached out to Dr. Meslow to figure out which incidents should count. He told me, you know, which type of apprehensions should be included in the bite ratio, what actually counted as canine apprehensions, and he told me what wouldn't. For example, you know, when the canine comes out after somebody's been pulled over for speeding and the canine smells marijuana in the car and that person gets arrested, that's not included. But, for example, if, you know, the canine tracks down a criminal suspect that is fled on foot, then that's counted as an apprehension in that uh, bite ratio formula. 
And next, Michael sorted through five years of field contact reports to determine which incidents would go into Northport's by ratio based on the criteria he got from Dr. Meslow. He confirmed each incident he included in the ratio with Dr. Meslow and did the math. Northport's ratio, he told Meslow, was 37%. He was kind of stunned. I mean, these bite ratios aren't supposed to go over 30%. And actually, they're supposed to be around 20%. And 30% really that critical level where it's like, all right, what is going on here? Michael used the bite ratio to solve his data problem. But the investigations editor had pointed out a second flaw, this one involving sources. In his first draft, Daniel Drake was the only bite victim interviewed. But Michael's editors wanted to hear from more people. So he went back to his database and found phone numbers for everyone who had been attacked in the last five years. In one day, I just started calling everybody. Um, And I ended up, by the time I made it to the bottom of the list, I had heard back from like five people. And every time I had contacted, I got in contact with a person that was bit or the family member of a person that was bit, the reaction was, was pretty much the same. It was kind of like this, oh, thank God you're calling, you know, like what they did to my family member or what they did to me was, you know, just completely messed up. Like I've been living with this like lingering pain since my life's been changed for the worse because I've been injured so dramatically. All I remember is finally the door, I heard the door get cracked and the breach and the alarm system went off. So I knew they were in here. So immediately, I turned my light on in my room so they can see me and I open up the door and I put my hands above my head, just like this. And as I see him coming around the hallway, there's a shotgun pointed at me, another guy's got a gun pointed at me. So I laid down on my bed, face down on the bed, put my hands behind my back. I got two sets of handcuffs on me and that's when those officers just started beating the hell out of me. And then after they got done with that, this was what really did it. They let the dog chew and rip my leg apart. That's Kyle Crosby. In 2012, Officer Bush and Tommy entered his home in response to an aggravated stalking warrant. He was later found guilty on that charge. The police account states that Crosby resisted arrest and the level of force they used was necessary. Crosby told Michael that Tommy bit his left calf for nearly a minute after he was put in two pairs of handcuffs. After the attack, he was in a wheelchair for five months and unconscious for two more. It still hurts for him to walk. Crosby is one of five people Michael spoke to. Some, like Daniel Drake, weren't involved in any crimes. Others, like Crosby, were arrested on charges and found guilty. At first glance, Michael's story doesn't boast the most sympathetic cast of characters. But in his eyes, a victim's past wasn't the most important factor. Kyle Crosby, for example, is a registered sex offender who was convicted on a stalking charge. Crosby was arrested, he was convicted, but what we were focusing on was, you know, with five officers, you know, armed with guns in his room, wasn't necessary that they unleashed this police dog on an unarmed suspect. So Michael kind of shifted the narrative that typically surrounds dog bite victims. His first step in doing that was to include police accounts alongside the stories of any bite victims, creating a balanced telling of each incident. The second was data. We went deep on data. I mean, you know, I think the data from all the feedback I got was what really sold people on saying, well, this isn't just a he said, she said thing. There is a systematic problem that's occurring that have allowed this many and this rate of bites to happen.
the story ran in July and has been Michael's biggest undertaking to date. He spent late nights in his office combing through files in between his regular daily and weekly assignments. The process reminded him a bit of his college days. I was in Greek life, and you pledge a fraternity, and they call that, you know, that pledging semester or year the, uh, the best year of your life that you never want to live through again. It's the way they describe it. And I, I felt a lot like that during this project because, I mean, here I am. I'm like a new reporter here. Um, I kind of get – I find out about the story because I am like the cops reporter, which is usually an intro beat you know, um, in newspapers. And the more I look into it, the more stuff I just found that seemed wrong, you know, that just didn't seem right. And so I was kind of floored by just the story itself. The Northport Police Department wouldn't comment publicly on Michael's story because of pending litigation. During Michael's investigation, Northport Police requested $14,000 from the city, in part to buy canine tracking software that would keep better data on a handler's performance. The Northport City Commission granted the money last week as part of its budget. Ultimately, Michael said the scope of the story, the detail to which he reported it, and the effort he put in was more than worth it. At the beginning of the story... We had one person that was, you know, accusing the police of wrongdoing and that they had suffered a, a traumatic injury because of that. And so we looked into it. And when I found out the sheer number of bites that Northport had, I realized a lot of people had been injured. And I saw the photographs and I realized the extent of those injuries. And then I started calling people. And everybody we spoke to could tell me how their life had been you know, forever changed by the amount of damage that had been done to them by these police canines. And when I realized that, I realized that there there has to be, because this wasn't public, all this information. I mean, I would have never known this if I hadn't gone digging for it. And so I realized that in, if we don't write something about this and make it thorough and make it, you know, you know, with data and these anecdotes, and to really draw people's attention, then this is just going to continue to go on and perhaps get worse, you know, unchecked. Thanks for listening. On our next episode, we have Azmat Khan of BuzzFeed News. The story we're talking about is actually the first story Azmat wrote for BuzzFeed. And it's a big one. She spent six or seven months checking what the U.S. had been touting for years as its fallback success story for the war in Afghanistan. The impact on education. When Azmat went to Afghanistan herself, she discovered a vastly different picture than the one the government has been selling. Sometimes she'd pull up to a school and find just walls. No doors or windows or a roof or students, just walls. You know, we arrived to this boundary wall and walked in and I just saw these two empty buildings. And the roof is gone. There's no one there. There were, you know, the people who'd come with us and that was it. Um, And I, you know, I shot video at the time and I looked back at it later and it was eerie. Although at the time when I was standing there, it didn't feel that way, and I could hear myself asking, "What well, at one point in this time? At one point in time, was the school functioning?" And I was told, "Yes, it was." Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes, and head over to ire.org/podcasts to browse our archives. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast. 
IRE, or anything else, please do drop us an email. We're excited to welcome Aaron Pellish as a new contributor to the podcast. He reported our story this week. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins is our editor, and you can find all of our emails in the show notes. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Shinneman. Podcast. Podcast.